Welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander with me, Reverend Terry Menifee Gow. And me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. We love the book series, books one through eight, so we will be talking about them all, so beware. There are spoilers ahead. Hey guys, we're back, and this will be the last episode of this season of Outlander Soul, but it's the second in a two-part series of us handling some of our wonderful listener feedback. Yes. So we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you're engaging us online and uh, via email and all that good stuff, and it's given us so much rich stuff with which to have conversation. Mm. Last time we had great conversation about Outlander as romance, as sacred text, about uh, the friendship, partnership, relationship, uh, theology, that type of thing. And this time we're going to be talking about something a little bit deeper and darker. Some of the other Mm. episodes that we've done uh, having to do with sexual violence and mercy Mm -hmm. and forgiveness and vengeance and things. So We kind of started that a bit at the end of the last one where we started, we were talking about kind of the Beauty and the Beast fairy tale and then started talking about, you know, Jamie as Beast and, and then it kind of moved on from there. So yeah, this the specter of the dark is is always present. Even, yeah, even in the other bits too. So, but before we do, this will be it mm. for yep. a couple of months. So we're mm. gonna give it a little bit of a break, and we're gonna come back about the same time that Fiery Cross season on Stars Network comes out. Season five of the TV show, season four for us. Not to be confusing at all. Yes, <laughs> and we do get a lot of that confusion on Facebook. Um, <laughs> In the meantime, Christmas will happen, and so will Hanukkah, Mm. and they happen during the Mm. same week. You need to buy a mug, and you need to buy (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts. Can anyone tell that Terry's a voiceover artist for for things? (laughs) You need a mug. You need that mug to say amazing things. From Diana Gabaldon, <laughs> quoting Reverend Wakefield, that says, If you ever find yourself in the midst of paradox, you can be sure you stand on the edge of truth. You need this in your life. You so, <laughs> but yes, for sure, you need to have a mug, you need to have a bag, and you need to have t shirts, and you need to give these to your friends. And a hoodie. So, yeah. the place you do that is at teespring.com slash stores slash Outlander Soul, which is our little shop on teespring.com. So go there. If you've got somebody in your life who just loves, loves, loves talking about theology or just loves Outlander in general, you're not going to find this quote on a lot of the other Outlander things. People haven't found this particular one as meaningful as we have. So Yeah, the value of paradox is is very underrated in Mm -hmm. most other places. But hey, it is the the source of truth for us. Truth intention. Always in yes, not intention, I N T E, and not not two together, but in tension, things are in yeah. pulling pulling at each other. So yeah, I yeah. and I talk about that so much in all of the yeah in all of the lectures I do about kind of seemingly contradictory ideas where those where those things meet. I think is is where we're well. Where the gems lie. Yeah, we're complicated people Mm -hmm. and stories that aren't complicated Mm -hmm. don't actually reflect all of us. So I think when we find that complication in a story, it's it's rare that it's just Mm -hmm. left to sit there when you find that kind of tension. Mm -hmm. And those stories that do are the ones that that kind of stay with me. 
And and I think Outlander does that quite a bit. Yeah. I, all, I think all the stories that I love are essentially that, that they present. Yeah. Ideas that's like, oh, shit, man. <laughs> I'm going to think about that too. Yeah, it does just make it much more difficult, but so much more rich. Yeah. I think. Yeah. yeah. So we also are going to be ending this four season with our forever plea to support our show we do have administrative costs like websites like editing things like that would love 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 for um you guys to if you're if you believe in the show if you support the show if you want it to continue we would love for you to support it in a financial way you can support it as little as two dollars a month or as much as you want to we're looking for a sugar mama yes sugar daddy (laughs) either one we're not we're not picky we would love to, for you to go to Patreon and support that way. Or if you just want to make a one-time gift, you can also do that via PayPal. Just go to our website, which is outlandersoul.com, and click on the Support Us button, which is up at the top. You can find all kinds of ways to support us, either that way, mm-hmm. or you can even support us in other non-financial ways. Just getting the word mm-hmm. out is everything to us, and we appreciate it. Yeah, because you might recommend it to somebody else who then they might be able to financially support a bit more. Uh, so, And also to listening uh, via Stitcher or Radio Public, each of those apps monetize listens. And so it's not much. It's like two cents per listen, something like that. But every little bit counts, you know, and so it's quite, quite useful for that. Yeah. Yeah. It's great to have people involved. And and another way you can be involved is what we're doing right now. So we are uh, responding to listener feedback. In the last episode, we were talking about some of the letters and responses that we've gotten from different episodes. And we've got more. The reason why we do this podcast is because of the impact that we think it has in people's lives. And yeah, we want to engage deeply with the story. And people are doing that. And we think that's great. So And we know that there's a community out there. And what we're trying to do in this is bring that community together to have that conversation in this particular way. There's lots of ways to do this, but we, we love having this conversation between us, but we like pulling your comments in so Mm -hmm. that we are a challenged by what we, by what you Mm -hmm. say and, Mm -hmm. and be making this a richer conversation, which is what you guys do. So thank yeah, you to the, the folks who've, who've contributed in this way, to the folks who contribute mm-hmm. monetarily as well, to the folks who mm-hmm. listen on Stitcher and Radio Public. Thank you for your mm-hmm. support so far. We, we wouldn't still be doing this now if it hadn't been for you all. And we wouldn't be having this yep. episode if it hadn't been for Kim. Who? Yeah. <laughs> Kim. And Catherine and Marilyn. And yes, so yes. we're going to go through each of these and, and talk about some of the responses that we've gotten. Yep. Um, so we'll start out with Kim, who wrote us about the sexual violence in the series. So we covered sexual violence in Outlander over two episodes in season two. It was myself and another listener, academic, friend, fan, Emma Nagoose. And yeah, we talked about the sexual violence against Jamie, but also then across the board for Mm -hmm. the characters and in the story as a whole, how Diana then, you know, sort of frames that in good and bad ways. And so, yeah, so Kim says that after watching all four seasons twice over, she has just started reading the first Outlander book this month. This was, I think she wrote this email probably over the summer. I'm not sure where you are now, Kim, but... 
we we understand you are early in the reading experience. And, and, and let us welcome you to the reading experience. Yes, yes. Because if it's not clear, it is a different experience. Very different, um, yes. To be reading the books. Yep. Yep. So she says, I'm deep into it and enjoying it, but I was really taken aback by the first couple sex scenes between Jamie and Claire. She says the blurred lines of consent were really jarring, she said, and not something really portrayed in the show, she thought as well. So depending on what definition we're using, a lot of their sex could easily be read as coercive rape. And it's disappointing, if not also very realistic. So, mm. yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because yes. I, I never really read those scenes as coercive rape on Jamie's part. I, mm. I, I read it as coercive, you have to do this on Dougal's part, honestly, of, yeah. of saying that they have to do this and they would stay in the room while they do this if necessary. Yeah, they were waiting for it to be consummated. They had yeah. to prove that it had been done. So that is coercion. Yeah. That is coercion. It, it, it's funny because of the, the way I read it was not that way between she and Jamie. But mm-hmm. I can now understand how you would read it that way. Obviously, Kim's reading of this is, you know, her experience. And and I can, I can see her point of view on this particular one. Yeah, it's funny. I got that. I understood that. I saw yeah? that when yeah? I read the books. Yeah. Okay. And, but on the whole, though, I saw it within the context of the romance genre or trope in general of kind of the the woman not quite so willing and then something happens and she's like oh yeah okay maybe I am interested in this now but that you know always kind of giving a, a resistance at the beginning and so Kim kind of talks about a couple of the lines that Claire gives around I, so I could feel the jolt of each stroke deep in my belly and cringed from it even as my hips rose traitorously to welcome it so this kind of there's you don't there's a part of you that doesn't want to right and then also gentle he would be denied he would not yeah and so there isn't space really for claire to have said no there isn't really space for at least in the marriage thing i mean could jamie have said no i'm not wanting to make him a victim in this situation i don't i don't think he is but as far as coercion goes. Yeah, he, he could have said no, obviously, to Blackjack mm-hmm. Randall. But he, yeah. he made a promise not to, to save Claire. Yeah. Whether he could say no to Claire coming to him. Yeah. Clearly, by law, he has the ability to do that. And clearly, by yeah. law, she does not. Well, me saying it, not wanting to make Jimmy, Jamie a victim was more in the Dougal forcing them to get married Right. No, 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 no. He um, could have said no to that, to too. Definitely a victim yeah. as, to, as far as BJR goes, but yeah. And, and Dougal would have found somebody else <clears throat> to marry her. And yeah. she may not have been as fortunate, obviously, because, you oh, know, she Lord, wouldn't have been with... what would have happened if Claire had to marry Rupert instead? Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> she would have been a widow <laughs> early just... on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or Marta. Yeah. Yep. So she says, I have hope for Jamie's growth when I think of that scene in season three, and this is also in the book too, where he tells young Ian, your mind has a conscience, but your cock doesn't. So in regards to being assaulted by Galus or Black Jack Randall, that it's an astute point she says about consent, that just because your bodies react to stimulation doesn't mean that we want sex. And unfortunately, 23-year-old Jamie still thinks about Claire being slippery as waterweed 
quote when he is in the clear as meaning that he's in the clear to do as he pleases. Yeah. And so far, Claire hasn't really done much to question that either. And so she, you know, gives the example of those phrases. And so, yeah, yeah, it's hard. And it's, it's icky. It is. For lack of a better word. That's my official official technical term. It's icky. (laughs) The ickiness factor is at least a seven. (laughs) So, so, so here's Mm. my dilemma. We're, Mm. we're getting this from Claire's point of view. Yeah. And Claire has been very vocal about saying no to other things. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm, and she does say no to Jamie later in the books a couple of times. I guess I need to know, is she just Mm -hmm. inexperienced enough to say no here to inexperienced Mm -hmm. enough that she doesn't feel like she can say no when she has said no to several other people and pushed them off? Or is she at the point where she's like, yeah, I'm pretty slippery. Let's go for this. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not getting the full intent of Claire here. She seems to go along with it. Is that actually her going along with it? Or is it her being coerced and going along with it? I I think those are good questions. I don't know that there's an answer. So Kim does say, I'll I'll keep going and then I'll come back to what I'm about to say. So she says that she then went back to our two episodes about sexual violence um, to get a bit of perspective and that she really appreciated what I was saying about the first book being all about consent. So between Jamie and Claire, between Scotland and England, you know, just Jamie Blackjack, that kind of stuff that... Consent doesn't mean giving consent. It's just the question of consent that I think the first book really sort of grapples with. And so I think one of the things that I interpreted in my reading of Claire is something around internal conflict. And I think this is kind of what the trope within romance sort of revolves around is your 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 body wants it, but your mind doesn't. Or you know you shouldn't but you do anyway. And so there's this kind of, maybe it's an internal conflict that's present in this story that, that Claire is attracted to Jamie. She has been attracted to him. It's not, that hasn't been, it's not as if she's repulsed by him in any way. No, she Um, actually likes him. She, she takes him lunch. She, you know, she, she likes being with this young man, but she never ever considers him for anything because she's married. Because she's married. Yeah. And so, I mean, while... She she doesn't love him. Liking a person doesn't obligate you to have sex with them. So let's be clear about that. Yeah. And I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that none of us are ever 100% fully formed in our thoughts about things 100% of the time. Yeah. So internal conflict is kind of always happening yeah. for all of us. Yeah. And so in some ways, maybe it's quite clever of Diana to have written it fairly ambiguously in that way of kind of, because it, then it does communicate that Claire, it makes sense then that Claire wants to go back through the stones to Frank, you know, and then it sets up the conflict in the story, but, but then it has its consequences. And I think that's what we're talking about here is yeah. this consequence of setting this up in a way that feels feminist but then it's not I think it allows her to be conflicted about her feelings and I I think that's the that's the thing here is you know Mm -hmm. how many of us the first time we had Mm -hmm. sex were conflicted about it or or the first time we've had sex with anyone or even the second third fifth twelfth 
20th, 50th, <laughs> were, were conflicted about whether or not we wanted to do this at that time. And then mm-hmm. we went ahead and did it. And we were either A, sorry we did, or B, we're not sorry we did. So I, mm-hmm. I can think of those times when I, you know, were like, well, maybe I do. I don't know. Maybe you should convince me, you know, or yeah. or maybe I do. Okay, let's just do this. Mm-hmm. And it, it it's more complicated than just being coerced, I guess I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. But then there's also that element around, you know, so some people would define rape as anything other than an enthusiastic yes. Yes. And that enthusiastic yes as being 100% committed, you're not conflicted in any kind of way. And and yeah. That's hard. But that's really hard to always maintain. And it's really Um, hard for me as a human being to be 100% mm -hmm. enthusiastic about everything that I do. And that includes getting out of bed in the morning. And that, <laughs> I mean, truly, I mean, and I'm 100% enthusiastic about all these things that I do. Mm-hmm. But I think to, <laughs> I, I, I think the, d- don't get me wrong. I'm I su- just having I mental su- images of you being 100% enthusiastic, like craft charts. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I'm only 90%. Is, is there like something I can grip in the morning to say, Terry is 100% enthusiastic? <laughs> And I don't mean to poo-poo what's happening now with rape culture and the calling of it. Because, oh my God, we have needed this for so long. But at the same time, the voices and the stories and the messages are still there for women, especially, Mm -hmm. that teach us not to be 100% enthusiastic about anything sexual. Yeah. Because then you're a slut, then you're a floozy, then you're a slag, whatever the word is. Or or if yeah. you lose this, you will be ruined. If you lose this, you can yeah. never go back. Whereas yeah. for men, it is a, it, there are many, many messages that are out there as, yes, of mm-hmm. course you want this. Yes, of course it's going to feel mm-hmm. good. Yes, you're going to enjoy this. Do this, the do this, do this. cultural conditioning between commitment levels for gender, definitely. So yeah. it's, so I'm, I'm trying to think of the communication between two people who mm-hmm. are brand new at this at 18 or 17 years old trying to figure out who's got enthusiastic consent here Mm -hmm. and that as a 17 year old has got to Mm -hmm. be a really difficult thing to navigate yeah oh my god I can't imagine having to navigate that whenever Mm -hmm. I first had sex because I, I wasn't 100% enthusiastic about it. I was going to do it. And I said, this is what I was going to do. And so I committed to this action. And the action is my own. And I own that. But I was scared shitless. And I didn't know how it was going to feel. It was supposed to hurt. And it did. And I, I didn't know what was, I didn't know what I was getting myself in for. Because it's an unknown. Yeah. Yeah. And it's got to feel that way to men too. So mm-hmm. I, this is a real tension isn't it and we were just talking about this this is a real Mm -hmm. tension of Claire Mm -hmm. not giving us her full enthusiastic consent Mm -hmm. but Jamie moving forward and us not knowing and that comes with complications and we've been talking about enthusiasm we have not talked about power and the power dynamic in this situation Mm. that just complicates it even more yeah, because Jamie so, has yeah. a certain power. Um, Blackjack mm-hmm. obviously has got power over Jamie and, and mm-hmm. because Jamie has placed himself in Blackjack's power. Jamie does not offer his enthusiastic consent, 
but he has mm-hmm. offered consent for Blackjack to do whatever he wants. Does that make it less yeah. rape? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's it. Thank you, Kim, mm-hmm. <laughs> for bringing this <laughs> to the conversation. That's hard. Definitely. Yeah. I think just generally speaking, fandom, occasionally you'll see somebody wanting to kind of struggle with some of these issues and and fandom isn't always the safe place to do that. No, it's not. So, yeah, I I hope that this is a place where those conversations can be had. Yeah. There's no no judgment and no preservation of Jamie's honor or anything like that. Oh God, no. In this context. No, in the last episode, we actually had one of the, one of our listeners say that Jamie is not the king of men because he does not behave appropriately. There's still that moment where Claire is wearing the red dress and he goes, I want to rape you on the spot. And I'm like, Oh, Jamie, don't say that. Don't say that. Please don't say that. Mm, So, We haven't answered any questions here, clearly. No, but we we are with you, Kim. Yeah. We are with you. So we then move on to mercy and forgiveness and vengeance. So we'll start actually with Catherine and Marilyn both, who wrote us kind of around the issue of what mercy means and whether or not Brie was being merciful to Bonnet, which we talked about a bit in that episode. Yeah. So... Tara, do you want to start kind of with Marilyn's bit? Sure. So we were just talking about power, right? And mm-hmm. so Marilyn yeah. brings this, this the whole power imbalance in here. Because, I mean, if you look mm-hmm. around you, there's always issues of power imbalance. And Diana brings those out in the book. And she does it really well, I think. Yeah. Too. yeah. I think she does. Sometimes she's very, she puts her finger on it. But oftentimes it's a very subtle thing that we mm. that we get where we get this here is as Marilyn says mercy is only available in the presence of power imbalance in other words with practice anyone can offer compassion at any time and at any level really but one can only offer mercy when one has power over the other mm. because mm-hmm. it is something that you can give she- Bree has power over Stephen Bonnet when she shot him because he's tied to the stake and he's about to drown. This is his greatest fear. He is caught. He's tied to the stake. He's going to be drowned when the tide comes up. As a means of execution. As a means of execution. And so it becomes Mm -hmm. mercy because he has no power in this situation. And Bree does. Mm -hmm. And so she shoots him and kills him. So he doesn't Mm -hmm. have to endure a very scary death. So Marilyn calls that mercy when she kills him. Yeah. Whereas Catherine asked the question of whether or not that is mercy. Hmm. So she says, when people discuss Bree shooting Bonnet in the head so he doesn't drown, it's often presented as simply an act of mercy on her part. So I think there's much more to it than that, Catherine says. So she says, few readers seem to have noticed how that event transpired. As Roger and Bree are talking, when they go out to see Bonnet tied to the stake... Roger offers to shoot him for her, and she declines. So the passage, written from Roger's point of view, talks about having a vow not to kill, and refers to when Jamie and the other men kill the guys who kidnapped Claire. And Bree tells Roger that he has the vow not to kill. And then she says, I don't have that sort of vow, and I gave my word. And then it's followed by, She had gone with Jamie after dark the night before to a place where the pirate was being held. Roger had no idea what sort of bribery or force of personality had been employed, 
but they had been admitted. And so Jamie had brought her back to their room very late, white-faced with a sheaf of papers that she'd handed over to her father. Affidavits, she'd said. Sworn statements of Stephen Bonnet's business dealings with various merchants up and down the coast. And so Roger had given Jamie a murderous look and got, on, got the same back with interest. This is war, Fraser's narrowed eyes had said, and I will use any weapon I can. So this indicates to me, Catherine says, that Jamie wanted to get evidence against other people involved in Bree's kidnapping, and perhaps others like Philip Wiley, so he could take revenge, and even information that could be used in the Continental's advantage in the war. And so the price of that evidence was to save him from death by drowning. So Bree points out to Roger that she's the only one who can do it, for whom it wouldn't be murder. So a lot of the readers seem to have missed the point about them coming back with the affidavits or don't link it to her shooting bonnet. I completely forgot about, about that? that. I completely mm-hmm. forgot about that. I did too. And I did not put yep. those two things together at all. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Wow. So Catherine goes on. She says, so while it was in a sense of act of mercy, she didn't do it out of the goodness of her heart, or at least not entirely. She says she certainly didn't do it because she had a soft spot for him, which is what she can see some fans saying, which, yeah, we agree. Ick. So I think we may have not yet seen the last of those affidavits. Or maybe we have. Diana leaves minor plots dangling to wither and die sometimes. But anyway, I hope this makes it to you in time for you to consider it for your next podcast about mercy and forgiveness, which it didn't do. But we're talking about it now because we think it deserves more attention. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. That's a great observation. I never considered that. So Brie Mm. really mirrors her dad in so many ways, right? She does. Both dads. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, both dads. Yeah, you're right. So her other dad would have made this kind of a compromise too, I think. I think yep, Frank, I think this, so. is, this is very much a war <clears throat> Frank coming out in her of mm-hmm. I can get something of for business this. Yep. in this situation. Yep. yep. So her dad is going to want vengeance, but he's going to want mm-hmm. to get something for it because he's a Highlander and he mm-hmm. is, he's going to drive a bargain. I'm going to get this information mm-hmm. from you, but I'm going to offer you something that you really, really want. You're still going to die. Yep. And the idea that he brought Bree in there to do it, whoo, mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. he talks to her in Drums of Autumn about not killing the person who rapes you, yep. even though he does it with Blackjack. Yeah. I mean, okay, so we could look at it from the context of the author, right? Well, why did Diana set this up in this particular way? What is it about the conflict, the conflict in this particular story as far as narratively goes? Why It makes more sense for Brie to do it, right? Because there is something, there is an emotional catharsis perhaps that's, that is connected with this, or at least we would interpret it maybe. And that, I yeah. think that's what probably people are doing when they're saying, oh, this was an act of mercy on her right, part. Right, right, right. Because they're emotionally connected with her. But Jamie mm-hmm. could have just as easily done it. No, but see, he couldn't have. She can commit. She can kill the man because he raped her. Right. But Jamie couldn't have gone out on the boat and just shot him as an act of mercy. I don't think anybody was watching or would have apprehended like, does anybody say, oh, well, she could, we're not going to arrest her because, you know. Well, so I guess that's my, so I guess that's a question. then. Mm-hmm. If she kills him, is it mm-hmm. lawful for her to kill him? Because he's the one who raped her. 
And is it not lawful for her father to then Mm -hmm. go and do this? It it would have been lawful, I think, for her husband to go Mm -hmm. and exact vengeance on Stephen Bonnet himself. But of -hmm. course, Roger has a vow on him that he cannot kill. I don't remember anywhere in the story, though, that it indicates that other people noticed that that happened. I think she does it. No, I thought she did it in a way. I thought she did it in a way that it did not look like she was going to be killing him. I thought she hid the fact that she was that she was shooting him. Although Mm -hmm. it's got to make a big pop sound, right? You know, it's got to make a sound. I'll have to go back and read that. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, it wasn't an echo in the bone. It was in a breath of snow and ashes. Here it is. She dropped her arms and stood straight watching. People around them were jostling for a better view, veering and catcalling. She stood back while the two officers backed Stephen Bonnet to the stake. So let me go to the next, waiting for him to drown. He says, you don't have to do it. That's Roger. Uh, yeah, Roger. I'm, I'm just, I'm skipping ahead. She says, I should have killed him on Oka Croak. <laughs> I was a coward. Mm-hmm. I thought it would be easier. Well, that's important. I should have killed him at Oka Croak. Yeah. I didn't. So she is putting something right. She's doing a should, right? She's Yeah, she said, I should have killed him on Okacroak. I was a coward. I thought it would be easier to let the law do it. She opened her mm-hmm. eyes and now met his gaze. Her eyes reddened but clear. I can't let it happen this way, even if I hadn't given my word, is what she says. So she has given her word to kill him. Yeah, but she says, I can't let it happen this way, mm-hmm. even if I hadn't given my word. So it's a little so bit different than she what would, Catherine She says. should have killed, killed him regardless, but she's given her word that she's going to kill him. Yes, but she still can't let him drown this way, is what I'm hearing. Mm-hmm. And even if she hadn't given her word, which her word was to kill him, she would still go and do this. So this is also an act of mercy. Okay, so see, you and I are looking at this in a different way then. Yeah, so we are. I am hearing that you're saying... She can't let him die like this because of kind of a mercy situation. Yeah. Whereas I'm hearing that of, I should have killed him a while ago. I still need to kill him. Huh. That's interesting. It still needs to come by my hand. That's ambiguous. Yeah. Whoa. Let's see. So they're in the boat. All right. Bonnet's mm-hmm. lips were cracked. His face chapped and crusted with salt. His lids so reddened he could barely open his eyes. He lifted his head as they drew near. Roger saw the man saw a man ravished, helpless, and dreading a coming embrace. So much so that he he half welcomes its seductive touch, yielding its flesh. Blah blah blah. Okay, you've left it late enough, darling. He says to Brianna, and the cracked lips parted in a grin that split them and left blood on his teeth. I knew you'd come though. Roger paddled with one oar, working the boat closer and closer was looking over his shoulder when Brianna drew the guilt-handed pistol from her pocket and put the barrel to Stephen Bonnet's ear. Go with God, Stephen, she says, and clearly in Gaelic, and pulls the trigger. Then she dropped the gun into the water and turned around to face her husband. Take us home. And that's the end. So there's no indication that anybody heard it, that anybody saw on either side, that they did or they didn't. After Roger says that he offers... He offers to kill her for him. This happens like the night before or something. Brianna mm-hmm. sat down with Mandy, nursed her, eyes closed, refusing to speak. After a time, her face eased from its white strained lines, and she burped the baby. And she came to bed and made love to him with silent fierceness. And she says, there's one thing. I'm the only person in the world for whom this isn't murder. Mm. With that, she turns and walks so away vengeance. fast. Yeah. Mm. So I, I have a feeling that 
it, it's a vengeance killing and she's allowed to do that. That's, that's the feeling that I get from this. Hmm. Okay. The tide had been coming in all day. He'd been out there for hours. Yeah. I don't know if there's a lot of people watching. Yeah, I did kind of get that impression that the crowds had kind of dispersed. By it says, they would arouse no particular interest. Boats had been going out ever since noon, carrying sightseers who wished to look upon the condemned man's face, shout taunts, or clip a strand of his hair for a souvenir. So other people were getting close enough to cut his hair. Yeah, clearly she said people are getting closer to him. And so what she does is she, she waits until the tide is about to take him. And then she plugs him and... <laughs> Yeah, she shoots him, and then the water's mm-hmm. going to take him up. Yeah. Okay. That's a much so. more convoluted, complicated... Uh, uh, yeah. I think both Marilyn and Catherine have both looked at this text, and they've pulled both of these things from it. And I think both are there. Yeah, I think both are there, that she... Although you and I disagree. Mm. I don't I, I don't disagree with you, but I was hearing it on initial initial response. I was hearing it the opposite. I think that's amazing, though. I, I like your initial response there. Because that's, that mm-hmm. wasn't mine. I, I guess it's the thought of somebody drowning in that way. But then again, I didn't get raped by that person, right? Yeah, I, I, I think that's fascinating. I, again, really why tension in this story, paradox in the story is so important. Because both could be true. Both probably are true yeah. to some extent. And one doesn't necessarily negate the other in this scenario yeah so wow thank you guys for bringing that Mm. that bit of tension to this that was fantastic Mm -hmm. all right so we also did a couple of episodes we did like was it all these episodes on vengeance and justice mercy and uh, forgiveness and they all kind of mushed together elizabeth gave us another example for Mm -hmm. vengeance and justice which we didn't talk about we didn't talk about this emailed us i was like Oh my God, how did I not remember that story? Yep, yep. <laughs> not that we can be exhaustive, but still. Yep. Yeah. In A Breath of Snow and Ashes, chapter 122, Ian kills Malva's brother, Alan. We, we, we never know what happened really with Alva. With mm. I'm sorry, with Malva. We never really understood. We, we knew that Malva's found dead in Claire's garden, and Claire is blamed, that Malva was pregnant, but we didn't know mm-hmm. by whom. Ian thought it might have been him because she seemed to have gotten it on with a lot of, of the young men in the area. But mm-hmm. what happens is Alan shows up again and he discovers or he lets Claire know that he's the one. And it's sexual abuse, incest relationship. Yeah. He's the one who Alan is the father of Malva's child probably. Mm-hmm. And that he masterminded the plan, the evil plan to frame Jamie and Claire for the mm-hmm. killing of Malva and that he was behind the plan for Malva to blame Jamie for mm-hmm. impregnating her. And he came to the grave, to, he came to Malva's grave to kill himself. And instead, while Claire takes the gun away and urges him not to kill himself, Alan says, I can't live. And in that moment, Ian kills Alan with an arrow. Yeah. So Elizabeth tells the story, you know, reminds us of the story in that way and says that Ian tells Claire He's right, Auntie. He can't. He can't live like this, basically. And so Elizabeth says that reading this passage helped her to see Ian in a new light. Since leaving the ridge to live with a mohawk and then leaving the mohawk to come back to the ridge, he's a changed man. 
So he's no longer the goofy boy who he once was. And the Mohawk brought out the strong warrior in him. And he displays that when he comes home. And this would be another great addition to talk about with the masculinity conversation from last season, I think. So Mm -hmm. we could certainly add that. But she says, in regards to the vengeance and forgiveness kind of story here, here Ian becomes judge and executioner. He determines by his own right sense of right and wrong that a man like Alan should not live and kills him. So it's starkly different from Claire's instinct or vow to save every life that she can, whereas Ian's perspective is not is that not every life is worth saving. That there are good people and bad people, and Alan is clearly a bad person, and as a result, Ian exacts justice. And she says, I think it's also revenge, perhaps, for the pain that Alan has caused his Uncle Jamie, and so repays him for the evil done to Ian's family. I, I think you're absolutely right, Elizabeth. We talked about Ian and Arch, Bug, but we didn't... I, I find, actually, the Malva story, I find it quite difficult to talk about and I'm not quite sure why I mean I can talk about Jamie's rape I can talk about so many other things but for some reason the Malva one I don't know does it just get overlooked in fandom so it's just not kind of part of the everyday conversation we have around Outlander or is there something else going on there that makes the Malva story so difficult the the bit when she walks in Mm -hmm. and says that she's pregnant with Jamie's child really hurt me in so many ways Mm, it did me too and the betrayal not just of jamie but of claire who has taken her under her wing it's like um the three faces of eve moment if anybody's ever seen that old movie with betty davis and we've invested in her as a character yeah we liked her Um, i think (laughs) we liked her we were like yeah oh, look, a strong female character. But then what does she do with yeah. it? She, she just like tries to, when we realize, yeah. she tries yeah. to kill Claire. She, she tries to kill her. It's, it's yeah. just, it's, it's an awful, awful moment. And it's awful that her death even brings Claire closer to death and, and, and almost destroys mm-hmm. she and Jamie. There becomes this, mm-hmm. this moment of, do it, can I trust Jamie? Did this really happen? What happened here yeah. while Claire was... And Claire's illness. I mean, that right. is the closest to death that probably of our two main characters that either of them have been. I mean, even Jamie after Blackjack was, wasn't on death's door. He wasn't making the decision to go or not uh, you know right follow the light sort of situation i mean of course he was thinking about suicide after the fact but not not during okay so let's let's take this back to the mercy conversation Mm. i i think that there's a sense of justice and vengeance certainly in ian killing alan yeah because he he creates this horrible rift in the community tom christie doesn't return until later and he does it because he has had sexual relations with his sister and they tried to hide it it's, it's a horrible mm-hmm. story yeah. but i wonder if there's not some bit of mercy in killing alan yeah in the sense that that you can that you can read his saying he's right auntie he can't that he mm-hmm. can't live this way would yeah. he be a shadow of a person <clears throat> living well in this and there's way? also the the you know okay so they're catholic and so this idea, if we think about it in the mercy side of stuff, that this idea that if he commits suicide, he is condemned to right to hell in sort of more conservative Catholic theology. So not all Catholics believe that, but that certainly would have been the, t- the teaching at the time. So has, has Ian 
given mercy by Alan dying not at his own hand. Well, and to the the whole Mohawk belief that there are these like mm. half spirits that walk the earth, mm-hmm. the the people who should die, but mm-hmm. who who haven't, and who still mm-hmm. remain with us. That they're kind of like this ghostly person who kind of walks yep. through the world, wishing yep. that they were dead and that it would have been better so for them to be sort of yeah, specter this of haunted person yeah. um mm. will he ever recover from this and in ian's opinion clearly he will never recover from this and he can never be a part yeah. of the community certainly never yeah. again so yeah. is it better for him to die claire obviously her instinct and, and you know elizabeth's right her instinct is to save every life she can but ian's instinct is 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 much much different yeah yeah and, and and I think this is exactly the what we just did with Bree and Bonnet, right? So judge and executioner or mercy, and it could be both. Yeah. Wow. You know, so this mm-hmm. reminds me of, and I, I always do this, and I'm sorry, I'm going to take us down another rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> I love rabbit holes. Run away. Let's go. <laughs> this reminds mm-hmm. me a lot of Dead Man Walking. Oh yeah. Who any yeah. of you who've not seen the movie Dead Man Walking with Sean Penn and with Susan Sarandon about a man mm-hmm. on death row who does commit the crime. He commits the crime with uh, a friend of his. He he rapes and murders a young couple with a with a partner. The partner has a better lawyer and gets life in prison. This man does not. He doesn't have a good lawyer. He mm-hmm. he is tried and he's sentenced to death by a lethal injection. Mm-hmm. And so Susan Sarandon, who is a nun, and she plays an actual... Sister Helen Prejean. Yep. Mm-hmm. Who is a very strong opponent of capital punishment. And this is kind of her story. She's created a fictional character that speaks to so many of the people that she has worked with. She becomes the spiritual advisor for this man Mm -hmm. before he is put to death. The movie is intentionally ambiguous on so many Mm -hmm. things. But one Mm -hmm. of the things that it is intentionally ambiguous on is whether or not his death is justice, mercy, or a means of atonement for Mm -hmm. what he has done. And just this this conversation about Bree killing Stephen Bonnet, knowing that he's going to die, he's he's going to have this, he's going to die in the next hour anyway. And so she gives him a, an easier way out. That Alan is going to live a half life, or going to put a known bullet his a bullet in his own head. He gives him mm-hmm. this opportunity. Is this atonement? Is this in some mm-hmm. way a way of getting folks to face what they've done to another? By asking mm-hmm. them to pay for it in this really drastic way. And, and, and I, I want to say straight up yeah. and right now, I'm not a proponent of the death penalty in any way, shape, or no. form. But I, I wonder, that movie is intentionally ambiguous, and so is this text mm-hmm. about atonement. And I'm not going to say the value of it. I want to say the value of it, but I can't. Yeah, because I think the theological language around atonement is so murky. It really so is. difficult. Yeah. And so... Well, and it's um, it's funny because growing up in the Baptist church, they try to make it easy and simple, right? They, they it's yeah, it's an at one minute, right? Jesus it's a die, 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 <laughs> so you can live. And that you know, yeah. we are now at one with God because somebody else atoned for our sin. Yeah. And I don't think yeah. that that really speaks fully to what atonement looks like and what it was meant to look like, certainly in the Hebrew tradition. 
but also what it, it can look like here and mm-hmm. how how we, you know, atoning daily for the things that we do mm-hmm. intentionally and unintentionally. But yeah. in particular in these texts, the drastic mm-hmm. kind of atonement, the atonement of yeah. one's life for another yeah. is really yeah. a, a hard thing. It is. Yeah. That's a rabbit hole. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, no. And I feel like this is becoming broken record. But I do think, I mean, well, okay. So I'm <laughs> I remember a professor for Hebrew Bible Old Testament that I had a while back. Um, when I was in seminary talking about or arguing against bumper sticker theology yep. or anything that seems simple because you've not seen the full picture if that's the case. And I do think that that's kind of this what we're dealing with here th- probably throughout the, our entire podcast series. Well, everything we do is going to be that, right? We're going right. to be complicating the text, asking questions of it. The text is ambiguous in lots of places. So we're interpreting it and asking questions, you know, but like it's constantly this kind of asking questions and the tension and the paradox and the, you know, all these things. And, and, and what I like about Diana's writing here is mm. she does not take sides. No, she doesn't. She lets the character be true to the character. This is something Ian would do, but she doesn't make yeah. Ian a hero. And it could, as an author, it could be so easy to become preachy. Yes. I, I probably would. I, You know, like moralizing why they did what they did, you know, this kind of stuff. I think it takes such discipline from an author to write something ambiguously like that. Yeah. I mean, or, or if this were a myth, Claire would then take... Mm-hmm. And put the bullet in his head as an act of mercy and her own act of vengeance. Because mm. what Alan has done is almost taken away her husband, almost mm-hmm. taken away her life, and yep. and completely destroyed their community. This was her then, vengeance You know, to like take. we were talking about Bree's right to vengeance. Claire certainly has a right to vengeance here. Absolutely. Yeah, but absolutely. Ian takes it for her. Mm-hmm. He kills for her. and he mm-hmm. and, and he's completely uncomplicated about it. He, he absolutely knows that, the, and this is what Ian would do. Mm-hmm. I'm suddenly reminded of, of, was it Jamie saying, but does isn't there a time at which it's Jamie and Ian saying, we kill for yes, her? Yes, when he, they're talking, yes, when they're talking with Archbug about certain yep. things. Yeah, we kill for her. She has a vow, so we do it for her. And, and any yeah. of his Highland relatives would do this. Any of his Mohawk mm-hmm. community would have done this. He, he doesn't think about this. He just does it. When Claire doesn't, he does. So I think in the last episode, I was like, oh, yeah, somebody should compare Archbug and, and Mrs. <laughs> Bug to Jamie and Claire. Now I'm going to say somebody should compare these two stories. Absolutely. Bree exacts revenge for herself or mercy or whatever it is because Roger can't, has a vow, yep. and can't kill. And then Claire in this situation, has a vow and can't kill, and so Ian does it for her. So it, it's a, it would be a contrast story. Well, compare contrast, contrast but, yeah. But, but they're different, but they're also very similar as far as dynamics go. And let me complicate it even further. Ian takes vengeance for Claire twice here. Mm-hmm. He, he, he helps takes vengeance for her for her rape, but he also takes vengeance with Alan. He, takes, mm-hmm. he, he exacts justice here. But then it's his turn with Archbug. He's the one who's yeah. hunted now. And yeah. we see it from his point of view, what that vengeance is costing him. So yeah. I, I would like to see his vengeance stories where he takes vengeance versus Compared. Archbug mm-hmm. taking vengeance for his wife on mm-hmm. Ian. Yeah. 
Hmm. Okay, so all you um, all you people out there, get on it. Hot to we it. We want to know. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also a, uh, something, another question from Marilyn that we thought was worth talking about. So Marilyn asks a question around kind of colonization in Scotland, and that saying that uh, within the Scots system that the reason for fighting is for independence and it's about freedom and particularly freedom from from England or from the Hanoverian kings but she's like but I do have to wonder so what's the real difference between a king and a laird for those who aren't either so for the the average person wielding the the harrow and the pitchfork at Preston Pans or or whatever what's the difference what are they fighting for then if they're fighting to preserve the laird system as opposed to liberate themselves from the king of England? First, let me just say, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that question. I think the, the issue is about who you trust. You know, the idea of democracy isn't really a full idea. Yeah, I mean, you've got mm-hmm. Thomas Paine and everything, but it's not really a fully bloomed and the fruit of that has not really shown forth just yet, right? You've got the in Magna Carta. In this period of time, you mean? Yeah, in yeah. this period of time. You, you don't really have all mm. of that yet. That is still an idea that is so radical. Nobody has really tried to do anything with that seriously yeah. yet. So yeah. in fighting at Culloden and fighting for Scottish independence, you are fighting for the Laird system. But you yeah. you may not like your Laird. You may not like what they're doing. But you certainly trust the Laird more than you tr- trust the Hanoverian king. You yeah. certainly trust the Laird more because they're Catholic or they understand mm-hmm. your Presbyterianism as a Scots than mm-hmm. you trust the English who have done nothing mm-hmm. but run roughshod over Scotland and have treated you like second-class citizens. Yeah. You, you certainly are going to trust the, the devil you know versus the devil you don't. And so I do think, yeah, there's an element I think around, related to that then is about self-determinism. Yeah. So, or self-determination that, yeah, the, the devil you know, at least you've chosen that devil as opposed to someone else right. being forced upon you. And, and there's yeah. propaganda around it as well. I mean, there's the propaganda mm-hmm. of, look, here comes the English. They're coming to take your castle, your way of life. Does this sound familiar? Mm-hmm. They're coming to take yeah. all of this away from you. So you need to rise up and fight. Same thing happened in civil war in the United States. Most of the folks who were boots on the ground didn't own slaves and they were poverty stricken. And I'm talking about the the fighting South, the Confederacy. So why the hell were they fighting? They were fighting for very, very wealthy people to have a specific way of life. And it's what they knew or it's who what they, they knew. knew. And, and they were fed a line and they took it. That way of life entailed owning other people and treating them like shit. There was a a power, there was Mm -hmm. propaganda. Those people over there are trying to enforce their way of life on us. And and, and it's it's a bit of self-determinism. You're right. It's it's a, Mm -hmm. we want to be able to decide when we change and how we change. So we're perfectly fine with the Laird, but we want to choose the Laird. We want to say the Laird is, yeah, as opposed to, yeah. But what happens in the American Revolution is revolutionary. Mm To say mm-hmm. that we are going to choose the Laird that is not born of the Laird, to, to choose somebody that is that is not a dynasty, that's mm-hmm. pretty revolutionary. To say we're going to yeah. choose somebody every so many years that comes from us, that's the fruition of what 
you know, people started to kind of, I don't know, suppose we did it this way, you know, suppose we all had a choice in this. And Jamie is then now fighting for that way of life instead of another way of life. And it becomes, you know, what is the United States, which is, you know, currently right now in crisis. By the time you hear this, I don't know how the impeachment trial is going to be Mm. going. Um, But right now we're right in the thick of it. And we are now in a constitutional crisis. And we're hoping that the, the experiment that we started back in the 18th century does hold up but to complicate things though i mean yes we can we can certainly say that say that and and i and i do think that that's probably the the spirit of it but those who were still in power and voted in as presidents were still landowners from a particular class (laughs) they were landowners and they were aristocracy and so yes maybe it's not dynasty in the sense of they had a child then that child becomes the next president kind of thing right but they still were it was still, yeah, it's still a certain group of people who are still ruling yep. in a particular way. Yep. So, yes, we might get to vote, but we the vote pool is quite small. Yeah, it's um, only white men and only yeah. rich white men. Yeah. You know, as far as context goes, the same thing is happening here in the UK. It's really quite interesting. Yeah, I left the US because I was like, eh, I can't be dealing with this shit anymore. <laughs> and then where am I? Um, and so the conversation around Brexit is very much the same thing. Of um, So those who are desperate to leave the leave Europe is about, we don't want to be ruled by somebody over there. We want to make our own decisions about what we do. I don't agree with that, but, but it is about self-determination and who the English, because this is an English issue, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland are pretty much being railroaded in this situation over yeah. what England is thinking. And it is about identity. Who yeah. are we? How do we want to live? Who are we in this post-colonial, we don't have an empire anymore, all these kinds of things. And yeah, it's it's difficult. And you guys are still in the midst of all of that. You guys are still oh God, yeah. in the struggle still of this. Mess. Such a fuck up. Yeah. No other, it's just... A, the Irish have a great phrase, shower of shites. <laughs> and that is exactly what it is. That's even better shower than shit show. Shites. Yeah. Better than shit show. Absolutely. Shower of shite. Shower of shite. Shower of shite. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it's just a mess. Absolute mess. Yeah. And on that note. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got a list. Yeah, we've got a list of a few ideas that people have given us about new episodes. So we're going to go through those and be thinking about them and kind of figuring out. So the masculinity one just keeps coming up Mm -hmm. um, and we so desperately want to do something, but we kind of feel like we need somebody, the appropriate chromosomes to (laughs) to join us for that. So if you do know... um, know a man uh, or somebody who identifies as male that's fine too it doesn't necessarily have to be chromosomes it would be great to have a conversation elizabeth has given us some great thoughts around roger and fergus but there's just all kinds of stuff actually that we would really like to talk about as far as masculinity in the series goes and then we talked about in the last episode uh, around partnerships um, so I do think there's probably something we can do with that. We've talked a lot about friendships. We've talked about marriage. But yeah, partnerships, I think, is probably interesting. Yeah. What are some other ones, Terry, that really kind of get you going? Well, so we've had recommendations to do things about dreams. 
And actually, we did talk about that in the last mm. like two episodes back when we talked about ghosts and spirits and all the spooky things in the world, and especially yeah. in Outlander. But but to, to kind of analyze the dreams, particularly dreams mm. that Jamie and Bree and the rest of them have, everybody dreams in the series. And what's really cool yeah. is that you kind of get the insight in some of the dreams. But Jamie mm. specifically has dreams about the future. And about yeah. where his daughter is and about where Claire is at any moment in time. There's a question having to do about the beloved dead and ancestors. Yeah, someone had suggested that. But we've done an episode on ghosts since then. So uh, it'd be interesting to know whether or not there's something else more we can do on that. Yeah, uh-huh. we, we talked a bit about ancestor worship in that or ancestor mm-hmm. ven- veneration, I think is the better term. Mm-hmm. About, you know, really kind of getting in touch with the those who have gone before us and those that we identify as our ancestors. Two others that they talk about is the idea of sacrifice, which is heavy in all of the books. There's always a sacrifice. Yeah. You always are exacted a price for the thing that you need to do. And the idea of yeah. prophecy. We, we've talked about the Braun prophecy, but we've not really gotten into the whole idea behind prophecy and prophecy in scripture, the Hebrew mm-hmm. scripture, as well as the Christian scripture, or maybe other scriptures that are out there. And then prophecy yeah. in this sense, uh, in the sense of this book yeah. and modern day prophecies. Yeah, the biblical traditions more around prophecy as being as speaking truth to power and or calling things out that other people might not be seeing, but saying, hey, it's here. Why don't you notice this? And so, yeah, I think there probably is quite a bit we could be doing around prophecy for the series, certainly. Yeah. There's a few others that people have mentioned. So there's a whole thing around nonviolence, which we kind of talked about a little bit when we were doing the mercy, forgiveness, justice, and vengeance idea. But I think we could just deal, do an episode just on nonviolence and kind of how that's portrayed in the series, which I think is really good, actually. Much more nuanced mm-hmm. than it is in other places. And also the Quakers. And we've kind of mentioned this before of kind of doing an, um, how other faiths and other denominations and just different traditions are represented in the stories. And so the Quakers don't get a lot of attention in literature. And it's quite remarkable that Diana has spent so much time with them yeah. in this particular story. So, yeah, that's been good. So, yeah, we could certainly do something around that, too. Also, the whole interfaith mingling bit. I mean, people yeah. all come yeah. to the United States, and this, and, and they come for different reasons. Many of them have mm-hmm. come because of religious persecution. And in Europe, they had just fought this horrible war over faith, mm-hmm. and so many people mm-hmm. died. The idea that the United States was a place you could come and still be in the same community, and suddenly you're in community mm-hmm. with people you know, 100 years before you might have killed. That's a really interesting aspect of their community. And also just kind of Lawrence Stern, the Jew. Um, yeah. yeah. Just how Judaism is kind of talked about in the series. Yeah, yeah, not really well. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm not okay with that. Um, <laughs> so maybe maybe we need to talk about that. Yeah. Also the sacraments. So we've mentioned this a bunch of times. The idea of, you know, bringing the extraordinary the ordinary becoming the extraordinary because it becomes Mm -hmm. a sacrament of the divine inhabiting that which is uh, worldly that which is material Mm -hmm. and so the idea of the sacraments in this script in this and we could probably bring in some Paul Tillich and some other folks who talk about sacrament Mm -hmm. in particular Mm -hmm. talking about how the um, ordinary is portrayed as extraordinary Mm -hmm. and then more on 
discovery and colonization. We just finished talking about Marilyn's question about colonization, but a little bit more on colonization and kind of the ramifications and the assumptions that folks have as they come to a new land. (laughs) And whether or not they can. The whole doctrine of discovery, manifest destiny, westward expansion, all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And then race, too, we've talked about saying we would really like to, we'd really like to deal with that. But again, we don't. Kind of like with the masculinity thing, we feel like we need to have other people involved for those conversations. Absolutely. So if you're keen to have a conversation about that, that would be fantastic. And then paganism, too. Terry, you've been talking about wanting to do that for a while. I have, yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's scope for that. What we did have plans to do for this season, and we've had to delay it just because of you know life and, and situations coming up, but we do have an episode around pregnancy loss related to Claire losing faith that is, is in the cards, and we've got somebody lined up. We want to have a conversation about that, and we think it'll be really important. But yeah, so that will be coming up, we know, next season, uh, probably fairly early on in the season, too. Yeah. So. so as we're saying goodbye for this season, we wish you all... Mm-hmm amazing holidays whether you celebrate Mm -hmm. Diwali or Hanukkah or Christmas we wish for you all to have a wonderful wonderful season a wonderful wonderful new Mm -hmm. year and Jamie pulled out something that Marilyn said to us and want to kind of leave you all with this for the Mm -hmm. holidays and as we wait for the end of Droughtlander in the middle of February so um so Jamie why don't you take it from here? Marilyn sent this to us in relation to the time travel episode. And it's from Sheldon Cop's book, If You See the Buddha on the Road, Kill Him, which sounds incredibly violent. But um, <laughs> it's more related to not letting something become more precious than, than what it is pointing you too. So the religious tradition basically becoming an idol as opposed to the relationship with the divine. And so the quote is that we must learn to love in the absence of illusion. We must try to live a just life in an unjust world. We must be willing to go on caring even when we are helpless to change things. Our best may not be good enough. Still, it will have to do. I'm not okay you're not okay, and that's okay. Amen. All right, so that's it, and we will see you next time. So until then, take care of yourselves and those you love. Bye. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. If you love what we do, give us a review, especially on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast, because it helps people find us. If you listen and you like what you hear, please consider supporting us financially. Just click on the support us button at our website, www.outlandersoul.com. There's lots of ways to donate and every little bit helps. Also, we love hearing your comments, questions, and ideas for the show. So we'd like for you to join in the conversation. You can reach us through our website, email, voice memos, or social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Tumblr. By email, you can email us at Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com or via our website at www.outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everybody. Bye.